Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. On today's episode of The Business of You, we're going to talk about a mathematic equation. And while you're probably thinking like, huh, what does that have to do with the business podcast? I'm going to tell you. Before we go further, today's guest is Stein Hendricks. And Stein is a fascinating entrepreneur. He definitely has a passion for entrepreneurship and has started and grown, scaled, and sold multiple companies. He is an author of a book called T2D3, and that's where the mathematic equation comes in. T2D3 stands for triple, triple, double, double, double. I know, it's a mouthful. But if you're a SaaS company owner, co-founder, or even a senior executive, you're definitely going to want to listen to this episode, and you're definitely going to want to pick up this book. So let me tell you what T2D3 is. It is tripling your annual revenue for two years in a row, only to double it three more years after that to reach $100 million in annual reoccurring revenue. They call that a unicorn in the software industry, and it is possible. And if you read this book, you have a much greater chance of making it. So Stein uncovers a lot of the marketing secrets, the sales secrets, company culture, and things you need to do internally to scale your company to that level in that time frame. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Business of You as you learn more about Stein, his companies, and about T2D3. Stein, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thanks for having me, Rachel. I'm great. Yeah, thanks. It's a great day here in the Pacific Northwest. The sun is starting to shine a little bit this time of year. Well, you've got such a fascinating background. If you can share your story from um, from even your early days in Holland, it would be great to hear your journey from a, a young person to where you are today and the work that you're doing in the world. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for uh, allowing me to share that with your audience. My story starts with uh, with work, really. I didn't finish any meaningful university education. I uh, I stumbled into the software world in my uh, mid-teens, I guess. I wrote a piece of software that people actually paid some money for when I was 16. Really? Um, what was that? And then I, uh, I rolled into um, B2B software, Cotcom, software, 3D software in the early uh, 90s after I uh, I did my mandatory military service in the Netherlands. Uh, and and uh, from there, I, I made it into Microsoft actually relatively fast, a couple of years later, as our software was being ported to their um, then completely new um, Windows NT platform. And that, that's where my, where my current journey really starts. I was at Microsoft for the first half of it, for 
close to 15 years um, in both roles in the Netherlands, leading sales uh, and consulting, and then moving to the corporate headquarters here in Redmond to uh, have uh, basically global marketing roles, both on the product marketing side and then managing marketing um, globally for the, the SMB, small and medium business segment. So that was my um, yeah first half. And then the second half, I really um, started to think the stuff I do at Microsoft is really cool. It's amazing. So um, thankful for that opportunity. I also think if I wasn't there, probably still have happened. <laughs> Might have happened a little different. Um, but how really critical was my role? Uh, so I, I jumped all the way to the other side of the spectrum and decided to go do startups. Uh, and the first one was one that had just started. They had a product. They didn't have any commercial leadership. So I ended up running the whole company basically here in the US. And it was a small ERP company that became pretty big, Akumatica. And then did a couple more B2B SaaS companies, founded two, um, led another one, my first CEO job. Uh, to become a real B2B SaaS company. Um, and then now I'm at a point where I started this, an agency at some point because I felt this marketing and sales was one of the things that was really hard for founders when you have a founder who is either an engineer who found a problem to solve or a, a subject matter expert like a dentist who builds a software solution for account, uh, account and maybe client customer management for the dental industry. Neither have real sales or marketing background. So I ended up building an agency called Kalungi uh, to do that, where founders of early stage companies, when they are ready to go, you know, talk with the world and, and scale, and they may have you know, raised some capital, uh, that they can do that. They can outsource that to a company called Kalungi. And then I wrote a book that basically describes that same playbook. So that if you don't want to outsource your marketing, you can also do it yourself. And you go to market and then the book t talks a little bit how you do that. Yeah. That's like in a, it's already pretty long, but that, that's my kind of no. quick, quick journey to where we are today, Rachel. Yeah, that was quick. Um, with what are some of the most common mistakes that you see founders make that that um, keeps that holds them back from really scaling at the levels that your book addresses? Well, it's really top of mind today, especially the last year, year and a half, where we had this run of almost 15 years, 12 years, depends on where you where you kind of mark the starting point. But after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, things have gone really well in the world of software and innovation and tech. Uh, wind in our backs. Capital was cheap. You know, there are a lot of people who were willing to take a lot of risk. So you can argue that it was a little bit easy for founders <laughs> to maybe not run a company to the best of their ability from a quality perspective or the kind of the real, you know, attention to detail when it comes to execution, the type of people they would hire, right? That happened a lot in the last 12, 13 years. And some of that was fine because it was all about growth, right? Growth at any expense. And that's, of course, now coming to bite a couple of companies that may have not done the basics well. So back to your question, one of the, the very common mistakes is not to get to real, what's called product market fit, to not really establish clarity on, is it is it really proven that the thing I'm doing is solving a meaningful problem? And are there enough people or companies or customers out there who are willing to pay for that, right? And do you think of how you would define product market fit today? It's more, it's less about the amount of customers. I think if you would ask 15 years ago, I'll oh, get a thousand customers who pay you. Today, I think product market fit is more about getting a, a smaller number of customers who not only pay you, but they stay. 
And they and they say so to others, right? They tell others about your solution because that's kind of how you get viral growth. And there's just a lot of companies out there who get to a couple million in ARR, in revenue, recurring revenue, without really establishing product market fit, where they kind of buy themselves into a market. They get a lot of first-time buyers. They get a lot of customers who maybe sign up, but they're kind of you know locked into a one-year deal, but they're not really retained by you know, wanting to use your software. And a lot of those companies are now um, having a hard time uh, because they really have to go back almost to what am I really, who's it for, what's it for, right? The two questions that I think Seth Godin came up with that are really the um, the essence of, um, of adding value uh, to the right people. And so that would be the one thing. Right. How do you advise some of the companies that you work with or even through your book uh, to identify the product market fit? I mean, it sounds so simple, right? Like, who's it for? What's it do? But yet, if if that's such a challenge for companies are just bypassing it. So, A, like, what is happening? Is the founder just thinking they've stumbled upon some brilliant idea and they don't bother? Or... Um, or are they just not getting clear on their audience? Like where, where is that challenge and how to fix it? Yeah. Yeah. There's actually, uh, I have a blog article and I'll send it to your, um, uh, you can share it. It's kind of 10 milestones to product market fit. And it has some very obvious things like how many people have actually come to your website and signed up, right? Step number one, how many of those came back for a second time? How many actually consume your content, right? They're following you. They're letting you follow them home. How many of those actually signed up to learn more, right? To, to sign up for a demo. Do you have 10 of those? Do you get 10 of those that actually showed up? Did 10 of those actually buy? <laughs> you have 10 that then actually didn't just buy, but they kept buying, right? They renewed, it didn't churn. And then did you get 10 of those customers who are now customers that have stayed with you to recommend your solution to someone else, right? You can argue that going through each of those milestones is kind of that is a really nice way to think about where are you on that journey? Because it will get you ultimately to 10 customers that you have earned through others referring you. And you can argue that then you really reached product market fit. If you have 10 new customers who, who didn't find you other than by getting a recommendation from someone else, from 10 other clients, that, and of course you can you can argue what the number should be, but 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 that's kind of a, a way that I always try to simplify it a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, you run both a service-based business, right? With Kolungi, the marketing company but you're also very involved in some software companies and which I would define more as products. How, how are you um, in a, in, as a leader, like how do you describe the difference between marketing those two, a product versus a service? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't run Columbia, by the way, it's run by Brian Graff. Yeah. He's kind of the GM, uh, but, but I definitely still follow the business very closely in the end, we need to add value, right? And now with the advent of generative AI, et cetera, that's also enormously changing, right? Now, if you think of a marketing agency, there's a half of what they do can be automated right now, right? So they constantly have to rethink, am I really solving a need that uh, companies don't want to hire for, right? They want to outsource it. And am I able to show that in the form of outcomes. Kalungi also is unique in a way that it signs up for results. They use OKRs, objectives and key results, on a quarterly basis to sign up for things like MQLs and SQLs and actually you know, even bottom of the funnel impact and make part of their pay um, uh, subject to that. 
but that is kind of the how do you sell time right how do you sell service because you're really selling time and and the challenge is of course the time is our most scarce resource because we can never make more of it but if you have an agency and Columbia is, is, is about 80 people where you have a certain amount of hours that you're selling figuring out how you productize most of that like we have an acronym called stop standardize templatize uh, optimize and then productize, right? So every time you spend an hour doing something, is there a way you can templatize it? Write it, write a blog about it, right? Publish a podcast episode, turn it into something that is so standard that it can be used by others. Can you then make turn it into a product? So I think that's the first sort of when you ask what's the difference. One is that the one can become the other. So can you turn a software, uh, sorry, a service uh, value proposition into a into a software or into a product? But then when you are at the software side, to, to answer your question, then of course the impact is measured in a different way, right? Now you, the, the essence, the magic of software is that it scales without adding more resources, uh, right? And if you can figure out a way to do that in a way that people want to stay with you and keep using it, now you have a SaaS business, you have the software and the service part. And now of course service is not professional service, but your software providing that service. Um, I think the essence of that, when you make that move from professional services to being a real software as a service company, is that now you're going to be judged on constantly keeping adding value that your software is, stays relevant because you ask people to pay you again every year, right? So you better make sure <laughs> that that software as a service also every year continues to not just do the same thing, but do more, right? Because the, the bar will always be raised, right? There will be others who catch up with you, who provide the same thing, maybe at a lower cost. So so figuring out how you constantly make sure that, that software uh, keeps adding value because you want to want people to pay again. Right. It's a little different from providing a professional service where it's much more about the one-time delivery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Your book called um, T2D3 is a bit of a mathematic formula, right, to getting to $100 million in annual recurring revenue. What are, I guess, what strikes me as we're talking and and also myself running a service-based business, on the software side, a SaaS business, I would think you've got to keep putting a lot of money into research and development. And again, like staying cutting edge, staying relevant to your point. So how does one balance that equation of growing and scaling quickly, but also maintaining this relevance and innovation and cutting edge to achieve that those results, right? Is it over a five-year time frame to get to $100 million with that formula? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great question. I think what happened in the last 12, 15 years and kind of the, the growth at all cost era <laughs> that I just mentioned is that, yeah, relevance sometimes took a back, back seat, right? You, oh, let's just grow into a, another adjacent category. Let's try to service this other type of client who happened to stumble on our software and bought it. Maybe we can find more of those. And you always have to ask yourself, can I provide the same added value? Can I have the same focus, right, to to nail that niche just like I did with my uh, my core audience. And if you don't, if you end up becoming a little less premium, a little less um, focused, you have to wonder if you really need to do that because T2D3 talks about tripling your annual recurring revenue two years in a row and then doubling it three more years in a row. Basically the, the objective of most fast growing uh, ventures, software ventures in the last 12 years. And to do that, 
Um, and that will lead you to basically 100 million in error. To do that, people often think that they have to go really wide and they have to broaden the, the category that they serve or the amount of uh, sub-audiences that they try to reach. And actually, you don't. If you look at how big markets are for a meaningful solution, if you have a meaningful software product that actually solves a really important problem, getting to 100 million usually doesn't require you to have a very large market. It just requires you to do it really, really well. Because in today's kind of uh, business mechanics, there is kind of a winner takes all um, phenomena, right? It's very hard if you think of customers finding you through the top two, three results in Google or, or clicks on ads or the word of mouth way of people finding you. It's very unlikely that more players than the top two, top three are going to get a meaningful part of the market that you're in. So if you then do kind of some backwards math, the market that you try to nail, so to speak, right, that you want to really be a, a major player in, where you want to be one of those top three, doesn't have to be that big. Uh, so I think that's another, I think, back to your question, staying relevant is also about saying no and not falling in the trap of trying to do more um, to different audiences, but to do, do more for your existing audience, right? There's a great technique uh, that you probably know in, in sort of it's both in I think PR but also in product design. That is the why slash how letter where you where you use kind of the why question like why is this important for you to really get to the core of how it's adding value, and then you and you the stepping up to the letter and the other direction you ask how is it that we do something that's really special right and and whenever you have a customer interaction with your core audience which are what's called the icp right the ideal customer profile always end, ending those conversations whether it's a support conversation or a marketing talk or a sales um a call ending that with hey why is this important for you and then maybe ask why two or three more times and then asking how is it that we do something that's truly special if you do that on a consistent basis you will get to know your audience so well and you'll be able to improve your solution and your product, et cetera, that you can get to 100 million in your current uh, segment. You know, you don't necessarily need to go broader. Um, yeah, depth. depth. Depth is the key. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. That's also where the profits are, right? Especially now after the last 15 years, we're all about growth at any expense where profit margins were less relevant for investors. That has totally changed, right? Capital is no longer cheap. If you get if you raise too much capital for the wrong on the wrong terms, you basically become a hostage of your investors. So if you're a founder today, you better make sure that you become a premium player in whatever category you pick, right? Or you disrupt a space in a way that makes you really special. But you have to find that special sort of match that you have with your audience that is truly unique because that's where you can make some profitable growth, right? Instead of just right. throwing money at um, at the volume. Yeah, absolutely. What what inspired you to write a book? <laughs> it was literally sitting on my in my inbox on my blog for years. I wrote a lot of blog articles, both at uh, Kalungi, but also before that in other ventures I did. And it was just screaming at me that, and some people asked me like to, to kind of put it all together. And some of it was, there were duplicates, there were blogs that had, you know, had, had rewritten and they were a little bit better now. Uh, so it's fun, but I just said, let's turn. The book is probably the right format to do that in. And then after that, we also started the podcast. But of course, when I published the book, right, so some of the content was years old, right? So I, I sometimes I'm reading it and I said, ah, oh, 
I need to I need to redo it. <laughs> yeah, and I wrote yeah. a bunch of content after that that kind of kind of does that partly. But uh, yeah, I need to write a new book now. It, it's probably going to happen in the next couple of months. That is more in tune with the current environment. Oh, okay. Will it still be on um, scaling? Or... Yeah, it's probably going to okay. be. Uh, there's another term, just like T2D3, a common term that everybody uses. Uh, and to be clear for your audience, T2D3 was really coined by Niraj Agrawal from Battery Ventures. And I asked him if we could we could use it and, and battery. And it was such a common industry term. There was not a lot of uh, written uh, content out there. Right? There were a couple of blogs, but not a lot of how do you actually do this? So that's where the book came from. But there's another term like that, Rachel, called the rule of 40. And then some are now saying the rule of 50, which basically means you have to complement your growth rate. So let's say you grow 20% year over year. If you're not tripling, tripling or doubling, you, maybe you grow 20% year over year. For that to still be an interesting business case, for you to be a healthy company for others to, for example, invest in, you would have to also have about 20% in gross margins. And those two together, they add up to 40%. So any company that can sort of pass the rule of 40 test, where your compound annual growth rate and your gross margin together add up to 40% or more, that's kind of the new the new formula, if you will, <laughs> where growth and, and profitability get combined. And do you think that applies to lots of industries or particularly the software industry? Could you no, apply it to an uh, agency? I don't think it is really that broadly applicable. I think software got so addicted uh, to cheap money for very good reasons, by the way. The SaaS flywheel, you, you mentioned when we had our intro conversation, you compared it with compound interest, right? It's so unique in the SaaS business formula, that every time you, you you sell a new dollar, it adds to the dollars you already sold before because they will come back every year. So it's a fantastic business model that allows for really large investments in customer acquisition. Because if a customer stays with you for years and the lifetime value of that customer for that reason very high, then of course you can allow different customer acquisition costs upfront than in many other industries. So that made SaaS very unique. What it also led to is a lot of waste. If you think, think of how a typical software company uses their investment capital and you compare it to a hospital or to um, um, a, a company that produces something like a manufacturing uh, business, the ability to uh, uh, allow waste, right? Doing things multiple times and get it wrong, not learning from mistakes, et cetera, in the software industry is vastly uh, bigger than in most other industries. So in that sense, this this, this kind of, call it uh, correction, <laughs> overcorrection maybe, from growth at all costs to making sure that is actually profitable and sustainable growth is really needed in the software industry, where I think in many other more mature industries that probably was not as uh, much a big problem. Right, right. Um, the other thing that strikes me, Stein, is a lot of your work and your career has been you being behind the scenes where the book has pushed you maybe more to the forefront, right? You're probably out speaking more. And how does that feel to you? I'm, I'm curious, um, personally and professionally, because a lot of entrepreneurs that are more, you know, they have a business brand, they typically aren't super comfortable creating a personal brand. So how has your experience been around this? Yeah, I think for me, it's actually very gratifying. I am an introvert. If I do my like my MBTI score yes. or a disc profile, I'm an introvert, although I, I think I hide it pretty well. Um, 
but I definitely get energy from being alone. And, and so, so being in front of people speaking, being out there with the book is definitely uh, costs me energy. But I also have a really big ego, Rachel, so I okay. kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> Gives you and, a little energy too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the reality is I've always loved to um, to teach, to help, to coach. I've had a lot of young people at Microsoft that I hired from intern programs or you know straight out of school that I saw you know, evolve to become CEOs and executives and really successful professionals. And that's probably what has given me the most joy in my career and the most fulfillment. So the book is really, and Calumni are just other ways of doing that, right? And doing that at scale to kind of help others um, and see them um, benefit from some of the things I learned and that they don't have to, the mistakes they don't have to make. Um, so it's really gratifying. And yeah, it's absolutely fine for me to to be a little more public about that. Yeah. Right, right. How do you divide your time and kind of schedule yourself out? Because you are on the executive team of a of a fairly large software company. Um, I know with the agency, you have an amazing manager, it sounds like, in place. But again, you're planning on writing another book. You just wrote an, another book. How are you? And you're on boards. You mentioned you're on several boards, yeah. too. So... You know, I, so many people struggle, right, with time management. And as you mentioned, right, time is such a hot commodity. It's the one thing we can't create more of. How, so how do you figure this this formula out? Maybe you have another T2, D3 kind of, maybe that's a SH formula. formula of time management. I don't know. I don't think there's a real trick to it. Uh, I do tell my wife when she complains about it that, Elon Musk is like the CEO of six companies. So, if, yeah. You know. <laughs> um, no, it's a fair question. So, I have a full time commitment with a software company where I'm the, the chief revenue officer, which I take super, very seriously, right? That's a full time job. Um, and then, yeah, Kalungi is run by someone else. Of course, he keeps me in the loop, and sometimes we have coaching conversations, but those are relatively casual and definitely not a not a burden on me or a commitment that I, um, that I have to live up to um, to a certain level. Board membership, yeah, I'm on a couple of boards, part of my deal with the company that I also work full-time for, so that works well. The, the, the real answer to your question is you have to do what you enjoy, I think, Rachel. We spend so much time of our lives. Um, uh, people spend time behind a TV or you know, doing other hobbies that maybe are their, um, the place where their time goes. This is my hobby. I love it, right? I, I, if somebody you get to a point in your career, which I wish for everyone, where you don't work because you have to, but because you want to, right? And and once you you make that transition, and then in my case, also when your kids are in their 20s and they're out of the house and they have their own careers, it becomes easier, and especially I have a fantastic marriage and we both kind of do our, do our thing and, and we love it. And so now you have ah, a lot more time, right? Even when you do a little bit of sports here and there, you, you end up having many hours that you can pour into the stuff you really love to do. Which in my case is yeah, running a running a day to day, you know, software business, writing a couple more content pieces, being on yeah. a couple of boards. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. What do you see in your future? As I say ten years out. I mean, do you plan that far ahead? Or no. are you a bit more spontaneous? Okay. 
don't have I, I've tried to do the you know Zig Ziglar like do a goals exercise yeah. and things like that I thought I'm not good at that I tend to fall forward that's kind of my philosophy in life I, I take a lot of risk I, I kind of do whatever comes up in my head I get bored very fast and being able to do that being able to basically just constantly try new things and of course without you know uh, negating on any commitments I make and making sure I do what I do very well uh, but yeah, I love to kind of constantly kind of um, yeah, engage in areas of interest that, that are right in front of me and see what, what happens next. Yeah, yeah. I uh, want to go back to something you just touched upon earlier, which was AI. What are your what are your thoughts on AI and how do you think it'll disrupt the software industry or even the content production industry? There's two levels of answering this question. One is kind of as a human being and the other is as a professional. As a human being, it scares the heck out of me. I think if I work with multiple AI tools every day, multiple times, I use ChatGPT. When I, yesterday, I had to schedule a full day management offsite with my leadership team. And my assistant had booked two hours in my calendar to just build the agenda, to work with the team on getting like... You know, Sounded like, yeah, if you spend a full day with everybody, you need to make sure it's a valuable use of time. So spend time on preparing for that, right? I ended up typing in ChatGPT. I, I described like, this is the type of company, this is the type of leadership team, these are the challenges we have. This is what we'd like to get out of the day. And it gave me a fantastic agenda for the day. It took really? Me 10 minutes. The, the first agenda was okay. Then I asked to add a couple of things to make some tweaks. The second agenda was perfect. I sent it to my team, took me another two paragraph Slack message to explain to the team my intentions, add the chat GPT generated agenda, and I was done in 15 minutes. And, and I do this kind of four or five times a day now with relatively big time commitments. Uh, another one example that I had two days ago where I was working most of the weekend, Memorial Day weekend on a presentation for an executive summit for CEOs. It's about a 15, 20 slide presentation for, for a 45 minute talk. Uh, I think half of the slides, I generated the core of the content with some AI tools. Both ChatGPT, like, ask, hey, this is the question I have. These are my ideas. What else is there out there? And, and really, these are strategic topics, right, about certain growth challenges, et cetera. And it allowed me to make slides that I usually would spend multiple hours or maybe in an hour. And then, of course, you know, mid-journey and other Dali give me the tools to, to add some, some graphics and some, and some unique artwork so I don't have to go to a designer to wait for them to do it. And... So I think, and these are just two examples, right? There's so many others. Like I noted in our software development team, they use the um, the coding uh, AI tools uh, to make the code look clean and, and generate, and they, they see like 50, 60% productivity increase. So that's kind of the, when you look at the professional impact, that's fantastic, right? So I see the Columbia agency, for example, do things twice as, as fast and good, the digital, uh, design team, right? Ads for Google, ads for images for blogs, right? There's all this work that can be done so much faster now. But then on the human side, right? It is scary how good these tools are. And the time comes where they will be coaching us and at some point they will be managing us. <laughs> and they will be maybe even through some sleight of hand manipulation, right? But it will. I, I am fearful that there's a point in the future where at some point we don't even know that they're in control now instead of us, right? And we'll see. Uh, but it's going very fast. And everybody in, so I recommend any, any of your listeners, I did this with my teams in both teams that I have any kind of say in my own team and then the, the, the agency I own. 
I force everybody in this upcoming quarter, so Q3, so they have a month to think about it and prep. But in Q3, I want everybody in every role who is using their brain for their work. So think of professionals, right? Whether you're in HR or you're in marketing or you're doing a financial services work, whatever it is. If you use your brain, come up with a meaningful way to embrace one or more AI tools without being scared of them to do a couple of things that you do better and faster or more creative or higher quality. And I'm kind of forcing every team member to come up with an OKR for Q3 that is really embracing that, where they're going to spend maybe 5% of their time to actually figure this out. Uh, because I think if anybody kind of sticks their head in the sand of this, they're going to get run over. You know, there's a saying, uh, you, um, if you scream at uh, progress, it will run you over, right? That's, that's happening here and with mm. some people, I think. Do you think this will dumb people down or um, create like a laziness? No. I don't know. My two hours that I have scheduled that I ended up using 15 minutes to prep the meeting. Yeah. The, the answer to your question is, what do I do with that other hour and 45 minutes? Right, right. And if I do meaningful things with that, it will definitely, us, again, level up as a, as, a, as, a, as a group of people. Right, right. I guess it depends on the intentions and the drive of the individual, really. Yeah. 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 So... Um, what is your mechanism to marketing your book? Are you using any of your your tools through your agency to market the book, or is it more word of mouth and you speaking? Yeah, honestly, there's a whole playbook right that you can do to make a book. Yeah. we really didn't do many of those things. Um, we started a podcast way before the book, so that definitely helps. We did a little bit of promotion there. Um, we do a little bit of the cross referencing with all the work only does with clients and the blogs we write but honestly no rachel uh, we got to uh i think uh, we're at four or five thousand uh, people who bought the book uh, most Excellent. of those either kindle or paperback and then probably five six hundred of audiobooks that was launched a little later yeah uh, so that's for me it's, it's, it's fantastic right the fact yeah it is so humbling you know so yeah yeah that's excellent that's excellent yeah i don't even know what a good number would be right and um yeah yeah. No, I think selling 5,000 books is excellent. I mean, I, I don't recall the numbers of becoming a New York Times bestseller, um, but peop- I'm often surprised by how few books or how many books somebody has to sell in order to hit certain markers. And it's a lot less than one would think. That's a great example that there is, there's a whole bunch of content on how do you get on that list? And there's ways yeah. to trick it as well, right? Yes. Never spend totally. time on that, but I actually yeah. have no idea, right? And I don't know if I will ever get on there. And I, <laughs> yeah. We were just yeah. about starting to talk about the importance of repurposing content and kind of slicing and dicing it in different ways. So um, would love your thoughts on that, Stein. Yeah, there's that, right? How do you com- combine everything you do into some kind of a 360? strategy around content uh, there was, i don't know who wrote this i bet at um so sorry i cannot give credit where credit's due but there was someone who talked about high fidelity and low fidelity content rachel and it really struck me that when you listen to a podcast it's a high fidelity content um channel right it's very hard to fast forward and still <laughs> and still understand what the podcast is about. You kind of have to listen. You can speed it up. You can, you can listen at it faster. Um, but when you, of course, write something, it's easier for people to scan it, right? To look at the start of an article, the end, and sort of get the concept before they dive in deeper. 
and the same with books. So I think, yeah, to make sure that your content approach is kind of a multifaceted 360, if you will, that touches a lot of these channels because people just have different ways of learning and consuming ideas, et cetera. I wanted to share something else. When I, I also sometimes get the question, Rachel, how do I build my personal brand through content, right? And I, and I think content is such a critical part of not only your brand, but how you can actually add value in, in this world of noise and constant look, um, fighting for people's attention and, 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 and to keep their attention. One thing that has helped me and many of the founders and executives that I've worked with is that every day when you work with the audience you're trying to service for a service, right? So you need to first answer the question, who's it for? And, and if you're talking with people you care to serve, then every day there's an opportunity for you to write down at the end of the day to think about a question that came up that you were able to answer that might not be written. If you would Google the same question, you may not get a great answer or the answer might be very different from what you just shared with this person who asked. If if you have one of those, and every day I think if you force yourself to write them down, you, you come up with some good ones, then there's an opportunity for write a, to write a blog, right? If you, if someone, I did this, one of my most popular blogs on the Colony website is a very simple one. It is SDR versus BDR, right? The two kind of business development representative, sales development representative, those two acronyms, because there's thousands of content around that. But years ago, I kept getting this question from CEOs, from marketing leaders, like, hey, what's the difference? And I honestly didn't really have a good answer, but I Googled it and all the answers were all over the place, right? There were the original way uh, Salesforce came up with it where SDR is a little junior and then they develop into a BDR and they become a sales executive, et cetera. And there were other companies that did it completely the other way around or they called it different things, like lead development representative, et cetera. So I basically wrote a very simple blog that connected all those pieces. So, hey, these are, and I did a little bit of statistics, you know, how often is the BDR, this type of function versus the SDR, et cetera. That became the most popular blog on the Colony website. And it outstripped other blogs. It had thousands of visitors. And the only reason is it actually answered the real question. Because with all the content out there, I was still hearing people ask me, Stein, what's the difference, right? And so I, I, I challenge every leader, every uh, entrepreneur, every person who cares about their personal brand and, and their professional brand to force themselves to think about questions that you get from your audience that you can answer, but maybe others are not, and that are not being answered on the internet today, and then just go write it. And if it's a 2,000 word blog or more, nice. But if it if it fits in one paragraph, that's okay too. In the end, you just want to add value. Then maybe you post it on LinkedIn or something like that. Yeah, so true. One yeah. thing we we recommend to our clients too, Stein, is that thinking about your your pillars, kind of your basic pillars. So in in your world, marketing is a big one at your agency. So think of the most basic questions too, right? That a potential client has. And even blogging about those, even if the content does exist, to your point, you know, this, the one you shared, there wasn't a lot, but even if there is a lot of content on a particular topic that you're helping other clients um, with solve that problem for them, it's still great to create that as like a foundational pillar on your blog, because over time, right, that will rank in Google as well. Yeah, but but absolutely. I love that tip of listening to your clients, writing down at least one question a day and creating like just a blog um, editorial list, essentially. 
it takes away all the excuses, right? To add yes. drugs. And now it's ChatGPT. ChatGPT can write yes. the final article for you. <laughs> exactly. You yes. just have to put in the ideas. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, uh, last question for you, Stein. What um, are some things that are on your bucket, on your professional bucket list of life? You've, you've done so many things. And again, like working both in service-based and software as an entrepreneur, having many startups, what, what is it that you still hope to do? And you're an author now. I uh, I don't know. Good. You remember I mentioned I didn't. I don't think I have very plan. far. Yeah. <laughs> I tell my wife I have my like personal bucket list. I've, yeah. I've dove with sharks without a cage. I've been through a lot of things that uh, other people would um, yeah would think are bucket list worthy. I have a long list of those, and I want yeah. to learn to fly. You know, there's a couple of things I need to go do. Yeah. Um, but now professionally, I think one of the companies, some of these companies where I'm on the board, I think going through a major like turnaround of a company that's in trouble and seeing it through and, and getting the leadership to come out of that with an enormous amount of um success and pride. And that would be awesome. I have not I've not been part of that yet. Um but that's that's kind of it. I don't other than that, I keep counting the amount of people that I somehow I'm able to touch that end up leveling up and reaching their potential and that that in itself yeah. those numbers just keep growing and I, I love it yeah yeah that's amazing and that's the power of um of the books too right as you can touch so many more people yep. and yeah well i appreciate your time today stein it's been so great learning about you and learning this formula and i encourage everybody to to buy the book as well where's the best place for people to learn about you and the book and um Kalungi and your other company yeah, Amazon, the book is there, audio, Kindle, okay. paperback. Um, we have a website, t2d3.pro, P-R-O. Um, that's kind of where the community is. There's a there's a newsletter. There's a, a paid subscription for people who want to be part of the education side of T2D, their masterclass, certifications, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's the that's easiest great. place to go to, uh, Rachel. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to The Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.